Um, so as we've been uh, leading up to over the last number of weeks that we met prior to our break, we're going to uh, embark on a study of church history um, for the next, I don't know, foreseeable amount of time. I don't intend it to be uh, an overly academic kind of study of church history. I really am oriented toward uh, really a more theological and biblically based um, study of church history to draw out uh, the implications of key doctrines of the church and uh, that flow out of Scripture and the application of that truth in the life of uh, God's work over time in the past and even up to our, our current time and the implications that that has and the learnings that we can glean by uh, just looking at uh, what God has done <clears throat> in and through His people um, in the past. And so this is really going to be a study not just of of history, but of people and of the truths of Scripture and the implications and applications of that over time. And, and um, so we'll talk more about that as we go forward. But, but in thinking about church history as just sort of a general subject, a general category, I want to start by maybe getting some initial top of mind feedback from you guys. When you think about church history as just a general subject, what are some names some people's names that maybe immediately come to mind. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it, right? Calvin. Who else? Martin Luther. Pelagius. Apostle Paul. What about, um, uh, what about, what are some key events that come to mind? Council of Nicaea. What was you, I'm sorry? Reformation. The Reformation. Yeah, it's probably the, the big one that looms large in our our, our minds uh, in modern times. Yeah, in terms of historical. Event. The Great Awakening. Okay, more current, more modern. Constantine. Constantine. Okay, important. Okay, good. So so you 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 see how this kind of runs the gamut all all over the place. There are certain names that come to mind. I mean Martin Luther, of course, and Calvin and uh, the Reformation certainly looms large in people's minds, and we can draw a lot of different um, uh, famous names or big key events that that are known to one degree or another by all of us, either by way of reference or by way of, of diligent study, or maybe you've taken a class or you've read some books. But I think it's safe for us to say that um, one reason why it I think is is helpful and even important. Um, to, to study church history is that most modern-day evangelical Protestant and maybe even more specifically North American Christians don't know much about church history, really. I mean, if we were honest, we, we, in the main, we don't know a lot. I'm, I'm saying that by way of confession, and I'm thinking that that's probably generally true amongst most of us. Um, you know, we're preoccupied with not so much how people lived their lives and lived out the gospel in the past. We're just trying to figure out how to do it now, right? I mean, we're very focused on our day and our time and our lives and our world and our responsibilities. So there's a natural and I think somewhat normal uh, reason for some of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, there is uh, some significant uh, reasons and, and some important reasons why we should uh, familiarize ourselves and have some knowledge of the work of God through his people uh, in past times. There's lot, lots that can be learned. There's 
pitfalls that can be avoided. There's, there's so much that we can glean, uh, even in the context of, of being more effective in our day and time as those living out um, the life and work of Christ in our lives today. So, but the fact of the matter is, is that most people, uh, most even, even confessing Christians, don't have a real clear grasp of the flow or even the details uh, of church history, um, particularly pre-Reformation. I would say that, you know, in the main, more people in today's time are maybe more familiar. Even in our, our context, there's a, you know, more of a priority on Reformation doctrine. But pre-Reformation history, it's fairly limited probably in terms of understanding or knowledge of the details and the sweep of events in that, in that period of time. So, you know, we're, we're, we're more familiar with Reformation and post-Reformation history. Um, but that, that only constitutes about a quarter of time. There's 17, uh, 75% of time of church history that's pre-Reformation. Um, 1,500 years of the, church, of the history of the church that's pre-Reformation. So there's a lot... Um, that took place prior to the Reformation of astounding significance. Uh, I like what Nathan Busnitz, Nathan Busnitz is a, a professor at the Master's Seminary out in California. He teaches a, a historical theology courses at the seminary. And here's what he said about, uh, and with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek sarcasm, he, he, he kind of gave this, this synopsis. He said, In the minds of most people, in the minds of most Christians, their understanding of church history goes something like this. The Apostle John was put on the Isle of Patmos, where he received a revelation of the Lord Jesus, which he recorded for us, and which constitutes the last book of the New Testament. John then probably was released from Patmos and went back to Ephesus and died shortly thereafter. And after the death of the Apostle John, church history fell off a cliff and became Roman Catholic almost instantly. And it existed in this amorphous, dejected, heretical state for essentially the next 1,400 years. And there's a guy named Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it. And there was a guy named Aquinas, and you've probably heard those names. There was a guy named Constantine, who really debuted in the Da Vinci Code, the movie. And outside of that, nothing really happened. It was the Dark Ages, and it was completely enveloped in error and darkness, And then along came Martin Luther, a German monk in the 16th century, who, for reasons unknown to many of us, nailed 95 theses onto a castle door in Germany, sparked a Reformation, saved church history, and gave us Protestant evangelicalism. And after him came names like Calvin and Knox and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur, and here we are. And of course, he's making the point that There is a lot of important information, a lot of important events, a lot of important people that God used faithfully, substantially, significantly, that we are linked to, uh, on whose shoulders we stand on in meaningful ways. Um, And so it's helpful for us to, I think, develop a greater understanding and and learn uh, from these people in these times and these places in the past. So, with that in mind, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to use Matthew chapter 16 as, as a bit of a springboard 
uh, into the study. Now this chapter, Matthew chapter 16, I mean, it is literally jam-packed. It, it is a, a jam-packed chapter in, in the gospel. Uh, it chronicles critical events and statements in the life and ministry of Christ. It's loaded with theological and doctrinal content on crucial matters such as the threat of false teachers and false teaching, miracles, the importance of genuine faith, Christology, or answering the question, who is Christ? The church, its foundation, its power and its authority, heaven and hell, the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus, the work of Satan, the nature of true salvation and discipleship, the second coming of Christ with the angels of the Lord, the final judgment and the kingdom of God. You, you have all of those things, and even more you could probably draw out, that are touched on, dealt with, brought up, addressed in some way in this chapter. So if we were to spend several months working through this chapter and just unpacking it in all of its richness and all the content that's there, it would definitely be time well spent. No question about it. Uh, however, for the purposes of our current study, that's not what I'm intending for us to do today. Um, I want to just use this particular chapter <clears throat> to draw out some observations, um, maybe some principles um, that, that help sort of serve as introductory uh, thoughts, introductory ideas that kind of move us forward into a study of church history. And, and so we're going to do that together. I want to ask you to just read along with me, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll start making some observations that kind of launch us into this study of church history. Verse 1 in Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven, obviously testing Jesus. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of, of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whether you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I said it was jam-packed, right? I mean, there's a lot in this chapter. A lot of substantial information. And, and because of that, I, I'm hesitant, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit anxious, quite honestly, about about not taking time to just teach through the chapter and just reading it and then making some observations. However, I hope that in the way that we're going to just draw some principles out from this chapter, uh, it will serve our study well and also maybe uh, inspire you to go back and review this chapter and do some self-study and all the rich principles and doctrines and and instruction that's there. But let's just look at, at the, the chapter and, and kind of look at it from the standpoint of identifying what I think are a few. There, there's many that we could identify and articulate, but some key principles, or you might call ideas or themes, that we can draw out of this chapter that serve as a good springboard into a study of church history. The first one I would mention is this, is that this, the history of the church is fundamentally interpersonal in nature. It's interpersonal in nature. In other words, to study the church or to study the history of the church is to study the lives, the relationships, the actions, the beliefs, the statements, the accomplishments, the failures of real people. It's important, and and this is how I would want us to focus our time, that we're not just studying distant and sort of impersonal figures or sterile historical events or times and dates and places that are just sort of detached from anything personal. This really is a study of people and their lives and what they've done, both effectively and ineffectively, and the impact of that on the gospel and on the work of Christ in the world. It's fundamentally interpersonal. When you look at chapter 16 of Matthew, you see this clearly. The entire chapter really is comprised of this interpersonal dialogue that's taking place between Jesus, first of all, with the 
his opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then between Jesus and his closest companions, the disciples, and then between Jesus and one of his key apprentices, Peter. And these are real people. These are people with real lives, living in actual times and places and espousing very clear and distinct convictions and beliefs and revealing their fears and their flaws. And in some moments inspiring us, in other moments completely disappointing us. And that's what you see happening in this entire chapter. It's very interpersonal in nature. And I think that that lends itself to the dynamic nature of studying the history of the church. We're not just trying to figure out when something happens so that we can mark the date. there's, There's a human interaction here. There's a human dynamic that takes place that connects to us. Historian Justo Gonzalez put it like this. He says, from its very beginning, the Christian message was grafted on to human history. The good news Christians have proclaimed through the ages is that in Jesus Christ and for our salvation, God has entered human history in a unique way. It's very interpersonal. The study of the church should not be this detached and sterile survey of events and dates and places, councils and cultures. It should be really a journey or a walk through the lives of people and the ongoing interpersonal work of God through and amongst the lives of these people. As, he, as, he, as God himself is faithfully accomplishing all his good purposes, unfailingly, by the way, accomplishing all his good purposes. And when you think about what the church has journeyed through historically, one of the greatest encouragements you see is the faithfulness of God to fulfill his purposes in and through his people, in spite of and in the face of unbelievable obstacles and suffering and strain and challenge and what seems like insurmountable odds at times. It's a great encouragement uh, to study history from that vantage point, to recognize that it is innately interpersonal in nature. The second uh, observation I would make is that the history of the church is a story of relentless opposition to the truth. What you find when you study the history of the church is you find this ongoing opposition that's constantly being brought to bear against the truth. Over and over and over again, it is, it is relentless. Relentless ongoing assaults against the truth. The word of God, the truth of God's word, the veracity of Christ and his work on the cross. All the counsels that you study and all the you know, the, the Reformation itself, I mean, it, it all points back to just this, this reality of relentless opposition to the truth. And you see that right as Matthew chapter 16 opens, right? What, what you see there is a perfect example of what you find as you study church history. You see there in verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And we talked about this, and I, I know that several of you may not have been here, but we, when we were doing a little bit of a short study before uh, the Christmas break, and we identified some of the key 
uh, groups that were sort of on the scene in Palestine at the time leading up to Advent and the time before Christ. We looked at that passage in Luke about the uh, foretelling the coming of, of John the Baptist. And two of the groups, two of the primary groups that we talked about and identified were the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? And of course, they are throughout the Gospels. You see them opposing Christ over and over and over again. And what's interesting to note here, one interesting thing to note here, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees together came to test Christ. And if you recall, these are groups that did not do anything together for the most part. They were in opposition against one another in that day and time. These, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not closely aligned in, in what they believed, what their convictions were, what their motiva- motivating instincts were, how they saw themselves in their own culture, in their own roles with their people. It was very, very different, totally at odds with one another. And yet here they are uniting together, enemies uniting in direct opposition to the truth or to Christ himself, who is the embodiment of truth. And this is a great just illustration and example of what church history looks like. This relentless opposition against the truth. You have opposition from the hostile enemies, as an example, in this opening verse in, in uh, Matthew chapter 16. That's, like I said, that's indicative of, of, of the history of the church. But you also have opposition from weak faithed disciples that you see over and over and over again throughout church history. It's not just the opposition from hostile opponents, but there are things that have come against the church that have been the, the source or genesis from weak, the weak faith of believing people. You see this in verse 5 through 12 of this chapter, of Matthew chapter 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they start talking about bread. And he calls them out. You of little faith, verse 8. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves? And on and on he goes. I mean, this is just on the heels of a massive display of the power of Christ in their midst and feeding thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people with limited resources, miraculously, involving bread. And he's calling them out for their weak faith. And so weak, weak faith amongst even God's people becomes a theme that you see recurring over and over again, and opposition, or, or, or opening the door for opposition to the truth. And then also you have opposition from Satan himself, right? There is a real spiritual opponent uh, of the truth, of the gospel, the, 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 the opponent of us, of God's people, Satan himself. And you see that demonstrated here in verse 21 to 23. From, the, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So he just starts telling them, this is where this is going, guys. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be raised again. And of course, Peter Again, demonstrating another illustration of what happens in church history, where you have people in one moment who are doing something very inspirational and powerful, and God's using them in profound ways, ways in which we benefit from now, and in the next moment, completely falling face forward and disappointing. And that's what happens here with Peter. But, but it's even more to a point that Jesus identifies the real source 
of Peter's failure here when he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. So this this onslaught of opposition against the truth that is characteristic of any view or look of church history, we see illustrated very well in this chapter in Matthew chapter 16. And it's just it's not just opposition from people who are naturally opposed to the truth. It's opposition from a whole bunch of angles, right? And we see that in this, this chapter illustrated for us clearly. Well, another observation I would draw your attention to is that the history of the church is the history of Christ's church and his certain, unfailing building of it through the work of his Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's important to make that point. And this is where we can easily get sort of off, I think, off track, is that we can get wrapped up into studying historical events, occurrences, and people because either they're interesting or because they represent sort of an adversary against the truth and we want to kind of study them and expose their fallacies and all that. And so we can get really overly focused upon a study of church history that really becomes institutional in its focus. You know, we're really studying just institutions and movements. But a true study of church history is a study of Christ's church. And the work of Christ's church, the building, the certain unfailing building of his church through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's about people, yes, as we've said, but people are not the central characters. Christ and his ongoing work is the central theme of all church history. It is the linchpin. It's the benchmark. Note what Jesus said here clearly in Matthew chapter 16 in his dialogue with Peter. Look in verses 13 to 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, and one of the, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Excuse me, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter... You, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And not only that, but I'm telling you that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There is a certainty here about whose church it is, who the builder is, and how it will be sustained no matter what. And it will prevail. And so any study of church history that gets off that point of focus, that central point of focus, goes astray and, and I think diminishes uh, the impact and benefit of a study of the study itself. Again, another quote from Justo Gonzalez, a historian, says this, the history of the church, while showing all the characteristics of human history, is much more than the history of an institution or of a movement. It is a history of the deeds of the Spirit in and through the men and women who have gone before us in the faith. So it's very important to not overly focus on the human component, the institutional components, the movements that are interesting or compelling to us, but to recognize that this is really a, 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 a sweeping survey of the work of Christ himself to do exactly what he said he was going to do. 
and to accomplish it and to prove over and over again that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is about Christ and it's about his church and it's about his building of it. Well, the study of church history is always inextricably linked to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a fine point on, on the same thing I just said, but, but I think it's an important point, an important distinction to make, that the study of church history is always linked, inextricably linked, I should say, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Bruce Shelley, another church historian, in the opening sentence of his book on church history, said this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. It centers on Christ his life, death, and resurrection, it always comes back to that. It always finds its way to that. There's always something associated with that in the history of the church, to one degree or another. And you see this as a point of focus. After this, after this confrontation, this, this testing interaction from the Sadducees and Pharisees that represented to Jesus a teachable moment with the disciples, listen, take caution, we have opponents and they have ideas and ideology that will seek to undermine your grasp and your hold on what is true. The leaven of the Pharisees, take heed. And it is like leaven. It permeates the entire loaf. You must be on guard. So after that warning, and then you have this unbelievable, uh, revealed by the Father in heaven, confession of Peter of who Christ is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that the prophets foretold. You are the one that the people of God have been waiting for. You are the deliverer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you have his, his, on the flip of that, denial of Christ's own statements about what's going to happen. But then, in that context, it's Jesus trying to teach them about what must happen in this seminal redemptive purpose of God to have a Savior in Christ Jesus bear the penalty of sin for all those who would believe and be raised again to seal that. It centers on the life, death, and resurrection. It's inextricably linked to that. The veracity of these events. I mean, think about what happens throughout church history where even the very truthfulness of the account of Christ's life and death and resurrection is called into question. And the battle ensues over that, that truth claim. I mean, did Christ really raise, was he really raised from the dead? I mean, come on. I mean, that, that began to happen within the context of the, the Gospels, right? I mean, that began to happen right away. In Acts, we start seeing that. I mean, there's, there's, there's that kind of information that happens immediately, but it's ongoing throughout church history. Was this even true? Can you even believe the accounts or the understanding of these events. Do we really understand what we're talking about here? As the people of God, as those who claim to be the bride of Christ, the church of God and of Christ, do we understand the seminal nature of these events? Do we understand their importance? Do we understand the implication of Christ's death and burial and resurrection? 
the implications that that has on all of life, of our thinking, of our understanding of the future, I mean, of our complete worldview? Do we, do we really grasp the implications of this? Looking at church history and all the doctrines that flow out of these events, all the errant doctrine that flows out of it, and the battle wages against errant doctrine that centers around the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, denominations that take different takes on the import or implications or how you celebrate these events, how you commemorate these events, on and on and on it goes. It, it centers on these seminal events of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would also add that a study of church history is oriented toward a study or a holding forth of the glory of God. The ultimate glory of God and the certainty of His kingdom. And you see that that reference here at the very end of this chapter when he rebukes Peter in verse 23 and then he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall he give a man in return for his soul? And then he says, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. So that's why I'm saying, when we look at church history, we don't want to get trapped into thinking just sterilely about times and places and people and movements and that kind of thing. This is ultimately about Christ. It's about His church. It's about His building of the church. It's about His interpersonal interactions with people in real time, in real places, who are living real lives, who are living lives in their fallenness and in their sinful corruption, who are needing redemption and who are seeking to work out salvation with fear and trembling in their particular context and who are seeking to face the opponents that they have to face in that context. But it ultimately is a study of God manifesting over and over and over again His power and glory and confirming the certainty of His coming to consummate all things. It, it, it reinforces those truths over and over and over again as you look at a study of church history. I would also add a few kind of um, practical points for us to think about. When you start thinking about studying really history of any kind, but but church history in particular for our purposes, of course. It's important that we recognize that our we are we are looking at the past through our own lenses, our our own perception that is shaped by our own history. The the life and history that we've experienced and how our thinking has been shaped by life events and by the instruction that we've received up to this point. So we just have to be mindful of that, of that point. I think that one of the dangers in these kinds of studies is, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a danger for us as, uh, in, in, in battling our flesh, but um, particularly in this particular type of study, uh, you know, we can look back into church history and we can look for, for additional um, weapons in our armament 
to basically fight and argue and debate other people with. Right? And so we, we get some grasp on some period or some event or some seminal doctrinal battle that took place in church history, and we feel like we've got clear vision of it and clear understanding of it. And so, for example, think of you know, the Reformation and post-Reformation time. You know, we're going to be so much better at fighting against our Catholic neighbors or family members, right? Our Roman Catholic you know, colleagues at work or whatever. And we can get caught up in thinking that we have clarity around something that we may not. And we may be looking at something through a lens that's really a lens that we're, you know, the glasses that we're wearing, and we're not seeing it really as clearly as we need to. It's just a caution. It doesn't mean that we don't study and we don't try to understand, but it is a, a, real, a real caution we have to be careful of. Um, and like I said, the other one is that ha- what we do with what we're learning and what we're coming to understand often can be misused in a way that, that, that it reinforces our desire to be right in the face of confrontation or someone disputing our beliefs against their beliefs and that kind of thing. So there's just a, a point of caution. And in fact, uh, that's another thing that you see happening over and over again in church history, that time and time again, just the absence of basic Christian virtue and charity has led to any number of, of very, very bad things happening uh, in the life of God's people and the life of the church. Just the, just the, the absence of, of the virtues of kindness, gentleness, respect, charity, even, even in the face of strong disagreement over core and key doctrinal issues. Um, it's very important that we, that we recognize that. Our knowledge and our understanding of some uh, you know, doctrinal disputes or some seminal events in church history does not give us the right, nor does it arm us with, uh, with weaponry that we need to wield to um, defeat an opponent in a manner that really defames the character and work of Christ in us and the, the presence and virtue of, of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in us. Um, and I, just, I can just tell you, I've been guilty of that myself. So I, I, I'm saying that with a recognition of my own weakness there, for sure. So any other thoughts? That's all I've got in terms of uh, pointers or tips or, or observations from the passage. Anybody have any questions or thoughts or anything to add as we launch into this study? We're going to go headlong into a lot more information um, starting in the book of Acts. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate what you said at the end there. Just that, that, that absence of charity and love and the problems that caused in the past and even today is really amazing. Uh, even in the epistles, you kind of see some of that with Paul talking about the Corinthians, I believe, about their, their divisions from each other and yeah. whatnot. So I, I appreciate that a lot. That, Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. And again, don't get me wrong. I mean, they're, they're, I mean when it comes to um, the gospel and the truth, I mean, there, there's, there's times where it's, it's, it's got to be intense, and, it's gotta, and defending those truths has, has to be intense and, and unwavering. And, um, 
So I'm not, I'm not advocating a, a, a level of uh, unwise passivity in, in the face of those kinds of arguments that maybe looks like you're acquiescing to someone else's actual views or beliefs. But, um, but I just think that the tendency is often more oriented toward you know, the weakness of our own flesh in those kinds of encounters than, than toward you know, really standing in, in godly, righteous you know, defense of, of the truth. Um, so, anything else? Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I appreciated you pointing out that it's Christ building his church because I think when we don't have the narrative of scripture kind of giving us the behind the scenes look of how God is moving and making things happen, I think it is easy to lose sight of him doing the work mm-hmm. and it's easy to focus on the people. But like you were saying in the, before Bethlehem, how God brought in the Greeks and brought in the Romans and he established the roads and he established the language and yet in those times the the Jews maybe probably didn't see that as God moving and working so I think keeping that focus that all of this is Christ building his church is and it's a great caution for us even 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 us this local fellowship to remember that you know it's easy for us to think that we're building something you know and you know we can you know, we can lease space in a school and meet. You know, we can build a building or buildings on a piece of property, and we can build stuff in that regard, but it's Christ who's actually building the church. And it's a caution to us in terms of, in terms of how, what, what kinds of focus or emphases we place on ministry priority and, and what we value as a local congregation in terms of our mission and our calling in this community. Um, there's implications and application for us very practically, um, even even in what we're facing and what we're you know what path we're on and 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 our sort of place in this community and and where we are as a local congregation. There's implications for us and all of that. So important cautions, um, uh, inspiration and and hope, uh, all that is a part of it. And so it's just important that we take careful heed and that we, um, we're constantly testing our own thinking against the truth of Scripture and that we're seeking the wisdom of a multitude of counselors and that we're placing ourselves before others in accountability and all those kinds of things um, and really learning from, from what's uh, happened before. And when you think about the, the, the Scriptures themselves, I mean, there's a massive portion of Scripture itself that's history, right? It's, it's a historical narrative. This is another thing, too, that I think is a good point to make when you're talking about um, a study of church history. Is it not common, unfortunately common, uh, in our day and time to attach, uh, I haven't really thought this out well, so you might have to help me articulate this, but to to, um, characterize one's understanding of their own walk of faith, their own Christian life, to characterize it by current and very personal individualized experience rather than their faith being rooted in history, in, in, in biblical history, in actual truth-based history, the history of God's redemptive work. Um, 
there's a uh, Bruce Shelley in his book. He he talks about how I think I think the way he put it is he has a, in his office. He's he's passed away. I mean he's no longer alive. But in his office, he had a peanuts cartoon. Of course, I was immediately drawn to it because I love peanuts. But uh, I'm gonna try to describe it to you. There's this peanuts cartoon, and it's I think it's Charlie Brown and, and his little sister Sally. Sally, right? I got the name right. Sally, yeah. Charlie Brown and his little sister Sally. And Sally has been given an assignment to write a paper on church history. Now imagine that. Just think about that from a historical context in recent history. I don't know of any people outside of homeschool or private Christian school who are getting assignments to write papers on church history. But this was, you know, I thought that was kind of cool itself. But she's been given this assignment to write a paper on church history and um, the history of the church. And... um, you know, Charlie Brown walks up and says, what are you doing? She says, I'm, I'm about to start a paper on the history of the church. And um, he says, well, how does, it, how does it start or something like that? And so she, it shows the little, the little paragraph kind of in the box of the cartoon strip, you know, of what she's written in her first paragraph. And it says something like this. Um, Our pastor was born in 1940. <laughs> And that, to me, is representative of how we operate, right? I mean, history for us is as far back as we can remember to now kind of thing, right? And, and I think that, that taking that to a more, I think, detrimental extreme is that when, when people are operating in an understanding of, of their own walk of faith and it's relatively detached from the historic... Christian faith, uh, that, that's, that's potentially damning, ultimately. I mean, it depends on what we're talking about, but um, it's certainly not uh, healthy um, at, at minimum. So. so there's another benefit of making sure that, that our, our faith is rooted and grounded in the faith once delivered. It's, it's rooted and grounded in history. So, All right, good. Well, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed.